So, Joanne, can you tell me how you feel about the subway right now? Mary, that's a that's a whole lot of question there. Joanne Yu lives in New York City. My feelings about the subway is that I rarely take the subway. I am very nervous. Joanne's nervous because the subways are kind of a strange place to be right now. There aren't as many commuters as there used to be. And a few weeks back, there was a string of violent attacks. I used to love the subway. And, you know, I'm one of those, um, you know, people on the subway. Whoever sits down next to me, I'm going to make you talk to me. We're going to have a conversation. Now, instead of chatting, Joanne is on high alert. You're underground. You are, you know, sometimes the, the, the ride from one station to the next is a long, long ride. And, and you're basically in a little metal box. One more thing to know about Joanne. She's Asian. In fact, she's the executive director of New York's Asian American Federation, which means that for the last two years, she's been counting up one attack after another. Well, this horrific, senseless attack has many subway riders, understandably, on edge. Police say 40-year-old Michelle Alyssa Goh was shoved onto the tracks in front of an oncoming New York City subway train at the 42nd Street Times Square station on Saturday. Overnight, a growing makeshift memorial in front of a New York City apartment building honoring Christina Yuna Lee after police say a man followed her home and attacked her, stabbing her to death. Authorities say just before... Between 2020 and 2021, one advocacy group tallied up nearly 11,000 hate incidents against Asian Americans. And it's hard not to feel like these attacks are getting more brutal, not less. Joanne says... She knew from the time the pandemic started what could come. It began with the Chinese restaurants emptying out. We were hearing stories of Asian American, uh, you know, Asian American small businesses telling us it's really hard. Nobody's coming. We're going to close. People are coming and saying things to us or they're avoiding us altogether. And, you know, sitting and thinking about what's next. You're describing how you put your finger on this fear years ago. But did you think that your state of being hyper alert and worried like this would last this long? No, I did not expect this to be this long. And I'll say that my anxiety and my fear is increasing. Today on the show, for two years, We've been talking about increased violence against Asian Americans. So why hasn't this story changed? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI.
I asked Joanne to go back to the beginning. Tell me about that first moment when she suspected things were going to take a turn for the Asian-American community. She rolled back the clock to March 2020, when it was just becoming clear that the coronavirus had traveled from China to the United States. I was at my sister's house uh, and I was, I think I was working on my laptop. And then it just happened to have the news and the story popped up and said, you know, they discovered this virus in Wuhan and I stopped typing and I said, oh, no, um, because we see what happened with the, the South Asian, the Muslim community after 9-11. You know, all of the Americans who had nothing to do with what happened, but yet they were targeted. They were vilified. They were marginalized. And everyone's anger was directed towards them. And I thought, here we go again. Here is precedent in our community. Um, it's now the East Asians' turn. Given that you had this foresight and this knowledge from having witnessed what happened after 9-11, how quickly were you meeting with city officials to create a plan? And who were you meeting with? We did reach out to the city. I said, what's this? You know, my response was, what's the city doing? What's the, what's the plan? Did they have one? No. <laughs> hmm. Let me be candid here. No, they did not have a plan. And they said, we were going to do something, but now that nobody's riding the subway, we're not going to do it. What were they going to do? I think, you know, they, they, they really thought that they were, they were going to do some, you know, subway campaigns and things like that. Advertising. Yeah. To be fair, I don't think anybody imagined the level of, of violence that my community was going to face. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, those were some really tough days and nights. Um, and we actually came, my staff and I came to the conclusion, listen, if nobody's going to do it, then we need to do it ourselves because we know our community best and we deserve to be heard in every way. And so, you know, the first few months of lockdown, you know, the four, five, six months, it was just for, for the staff at the Asian American Federation, it was literally round the clock work. Doing what? Just figuring out what should the plan be? Um, are there people that we need to turn to? How do we, who should we talk to? Uh, what are nonprofits doing? Um, and in the midst of all of that, you know, many of the small businesses closed. So we said, you know, if you're walking down the street and something happens, where do you turn to? My staff who worked on small business, they were getting calls from the small businesses at like all hours of the day and night, literally like two in the morning, three in the morning. And what do I do? I'm scared. Do I close my business for good? What should I do? Um, but also really, you know, lovely human calls. You know, I realized that I have all of these masks somewhere. I'm happy to go somewhere and go pick it up. So there was all this lovely human kindness, but yet also tremendous fear and panic. It became like it really was just complete mayhem. When did you realize that what you feared could happen was actually happening? I saw that you had even started seeing incidents in your own neighborhood. Oh, absolutely. It happened to me. Um, you know, I wanted to go out. You know, we were told, don't go out, don't go out. But, you know, I was restless. So I, I went out in the afternoon um, just, to, just to go check it out. This was sometime in April. And I remember being a really nice day and I, I had my mask and I thought, I'm just going to walk around the block to see what has closed, right? First of all, everything was boarded up. It was really scary. And it was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm walking through a deserted town. Hmm. Um, 
And when I got to the end of my block, uh, somebody came, stood in front of me. Um, and I said, oh, excuse me. And I turned right to pass him. And he moved with me, moved left, moved with me. Um, and I had to tell myself, you need to keep calm. So I needed to just backtrack, turn the corner and get home. And I'm sure to this person, it was funny because he, you know, I'm not big and it was easy to intimidate me. But, you know, that was a moment when I thought I've got to be really careful when I go out at night. And because of what was happening, I ha- I developed these bizarre rituals. Hmm. Like what? Like I would walk down the street, but I, you know, when I heard people running, you know, at, at that point, like people were running at night because, you know, people were working and it was a way for you to go out and get some exercise. Anytime I heard footsteps behind me, I would just, my stomach would just be in knots and I would immediately turn around either facing a wall or just bracing myself for something to happen. And every time that happened, I turned around and it were people who were running. They were going out for their exercise. And it made me so angry with myself that I could not trust my fellow New Yorkers. You know, I thought, why are you so paranoid? But that paranoia has proved to be justified. You've put your finger on something when you talk about how the community thinks about these crimes. You've said that half of the community worries about too much police presence, and the other half wants a police officer attached to every Asian person. And I'm kind of curious about how you negotiate that. Like when you're in a conversation with a bunch of the people you work with and you're hearing those kinds of back and forths, what do you say? How do you negotiate there? You know, I am really committed to trying to figure out getting my communities, both sides to come in and talk. But, you know, oftentimes it's like herding cats because they're political opinions and people run hot on everything these days. (laughs) You know, for all of the conversations we have about the role of law enforcement in our communities, the reality is that there are times when we're going to need law enforcement to help us. That is, you know, when somebody gets slashed. There's no one else to call. Right. But you need to call somebody so that the person who's harming other people um, can be stopped and doesn't, you know, they they don't harm other, many others. Um, But they're not the only solution. The other solution is how do neighbors look out for each other? How do we have safe walks? Um, How are people keeping an eye on each other? Because the law enforcement isn't the answer to everything. And and to be honest, um, there has been some negative interactions, right? We've had stories where um, police officers refused to take any, write down their statements of what happened. Um, And, you know, saying it's not a hate crime. Um, We've we've heard those stories over the past two years. There's a language barrier. There's a cultural barrier. There might be immigration reasons why you don't tell anybody. There may be many, many other reasons why you don't go to the police. And those are all valid reasons, but there needs, we also need to figure out an outlet for those people with with discomfort with law enforcement. How do they get to report these stories? And I will say that 
that role was taken up by all of the amazing nonprofit organizations who kept their doors open. And, you know, it, somebody could walk in who doesn't speak English and say, you know, this just happened to me outside, or somebody said this to me. So some of those numbers that we have, and that we're keeping track of, those came from the community organizations themselves. That's really extraordinary. I remember in the last year or so, seeing reports about violence that was inflicted on Asian people. And it was notable to me that it wasn't, I don't believe, a report from the NYPD. I believe it was reporting from local organizations. Were you stepping in and others to do the kind of work of trying to just even get a sense of what was going on? Absolutely. We stopped, API had started. And we also we also opened up our own website, and I think I think it's in five to seven languages. Our website was also because we have relationships with law enforcement. You know, we have a relationship with the Connecticut Attorney General. We know somebody who works at the New Jersey Attorney General's office. So we thought if anything went down, at least we could be we're able to direct people immediately to law enforcement. Do you think that's how things should work? Or is that more a sign that there's a problem, that local organizations need to step in and start trying to track how Asian Americans may be being abused in this moment? I think this is a problem we need to fix. Nonprofits should never have to pick the place of what government can do. They have all the resources. And a lot of people did ask me, so what should government do, right? And, you know, there were times when just in my sheer anger, I said, how the hell do I know what (laughs) to do? Because I'm not the mayor. I don't know what all the resources uh, are available that can be, you know, put to helping people. I'm just trying to figure out how to keep people from getting punched in the face on their way to go work, right? I, I don't know the entire range of city services that could be deployed to work on this. And so sometimes, you know, just in one of those days, you know, I, I would have my moments of why do you ask us, why do you ask the victims what the solution is? When we come back, why Joanne thinks millions of dollars from Congress hasn't stopped the violence yet. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers— all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex. But it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. 
and with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions. We're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. It's interesting. I look at the last couple of years and what's taken place at the government level. And I really do see some of the hallmarks of what you've been talking about here, which is police and the government working hand in hand with community organizations. You know, the NYPD formed an Asian hate crime task force and there was a law passed in Congress that appropriated money to community organizations to fight against anti-Asian hate, the Hate Crimes Act. So I see a lot of things happening, but I have to wonder in your mind whether all of those things have made any difference, and if not, why? I think they're slowly making a difference, and I think the difference is that we're trying to figure out how to put immediate safety on the ground. Um, Money from government, as you know, it takes a long time. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved, so it does take time to get resources out the door. But I think that money is helpful because it's a, it's a short-term fix. It's to immediately put support systems on the ground. It is to figure out, um, you know, to get booklets to people. It is to do physical trainings. Like, you know, there's a lot of immediate response that we need to put. But I think where we need to have a conversation is long-term. And it's not just, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we keep people safe versus how do we prevent this from happening? And I think that is some of the conversations that are happening now. It sounds like you're saying this is a Band-Aid, basically. And actually, we need maybe surgery. I think you're right. (laughs) We need to have our fellow New Yorkers realize that we are not the other. It's the long-term game plan to have people realize, oh, Asian Americans, they're Americans too. And, and, And we've been invisible. We've been invisible. And we've been painted with this horrible... A uh, myth of you are the you are the model minority, you know you always find your own solutions. We don't need to do anything for you, um, and we have my community has been stymied by that. You know some of the poorest New Yorkers are Asian Americans. We have this unprecedented population population growth, not just in New York City but the state and the country. The resources that come to help to support our community don't match the growth. I feel like this year, 2022, as a New Yorker, it kind of started with this shock to the system, which was the death of Michelle Goh, who was pushed in front of a subway. And then very quickly after that, just a month later, the death of Christina Lee, where a man followed her into her apartment in Chinatown and stabbed her. Of course, both of these women were Asian. And in both of these cases, the people who assaulted them had a history of assaulting other people. One assailant had a history of mental illness. Do you think that complicates the story here? And does it frustrate you that neither of these cases have been classified as a hate crime, even though they were both attacks on Asian women? It doesn't frustrate me. It gives me a great moment to pause for a lot of empathy, um, because I think that's what is required. If you are empathy towards the perpetrators. Yeah. And, 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 and the homeless population in general. And I think that's what makes it even harder for the victims, right? Because 
after Christina Lee's death as a Korean American woman, you know, I fell into deep depression, you know, and I thought I am in this dark hole and I don't know how to climb out. And there were days when I would just sit at my computer and look out the window and just cry all day long because it, I think about her and I think about her life and I think about her death and I think about her family. Um, I don't know what justice looks like when you are vulnerable. Um, I, you know, I don't know what that means, but I know there's a lot of anger in the community because, you know, they're saying, you know, there are homeless people. How come nobody's helping them? So they're out harming other people. That's a very real question. That's not a question for me. That's a question for the elected leaders. What do the elected leaders say when you ask them? I mean, you speak to them regularly. We have not gotten answers, but I think what we need to think about in this conversation, you know, right now Chinatown has, you know, there's going to be more shelters in Chinatown. And the Chinatown residents are very, very angry. Well, some would say it's good for people to have a place to live, right? Absolutely. But I think the challenge is that, you know, the community has not been outreached to in a way that um, they would like. They found out this is what's happening. So they're angry. And they, that anger has been building and building. And after the, you know, after Christina's death, I think there were a few town halls or I think one town hall where there were 600 people who were very angry. Um, um, and I think that is... You know, one of the things I've been saying has been, you know, when these things happen in neighborhoods, our neighborhoods, you need to engage us and you need to engage us early. You can't wait till the 11th hour. You know, by the way, by the way, surprise, you're going to get this. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of anxiety and anger in the community. And when they hear, you know, some, you know, after after all of these tragedies in our in our communities, they have the right to be frustrated. And, you know, the engagement, the community engagement is not happening fast enough. It's interesting you say that it's hard to get a hold of someone and, and make sure that they're listening in government because we do have a new mayor, Eric Adams, former police officer, also talks about mental health a lot and the importance of mental health. It sounds like you'd actually have a lot of things to talk about. We had our very first meeting last week. Um, I, I was grateful that the mayor convened that space. And I did ask him, could we meet again and again and again? Um, you know, again, I don't expect the mayor to have all the answers. And I did tell the mayor, you're not God. You don't, you don't have the answer to all of this stuff, but you do know who you do know that there, all of us are in this room are committed to helping you. We need to convene and, and, and really look at the systemic changes that need to happen so that there aren't any more victims, that we have, you know, homeless services that actually, not just homeless services, residential services, where people are fed and they can see a doctor and they can get treatment. We need that. We, we need to look at what holistic services looks like. You know, I, 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 I took up more than my time and I think the mayor um, was kind enough to indulge me. Are you optimistic that if I call you up in a year, things will have changed? Wow, Mary, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I want to say I'm optimistic. I want to be hopeful. But I think the reality is government works slowly. And, and, and that is not to you know, ding anybody. But I think there's a system, 
right? Anytime we go outside the system, it becomes uncomfortable. And then everybody gets uncomfortable and says, you know, everybody says, we don't want this. We don't want this. So we're never allowed to be innovative and try anything new. And I think this is that time that we need to be, we need to try new things and we need to have innovations. And I hope everybody is patient enough. Joanne Yu, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for allowing me to share this time with you. Joanne Yu is the executive director of the Asian American Federation. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, and for only this last episode by Danielle Hewitt. You have only rarely heard Danielle's voice on this show, but if you listen, you have definitely heard her impact. Danielle's known around Slate as a haver of takes, as she herself put it one time. I, I like when people like argue about my perspective and disagree with my perspective. Like, I enjoy that. Pro tip, if you want to know how Danielle feels about Watchmen's Dr. Manhattan, it is worth a Google. She'll debate you about it. Danielle, I'm going to miss not just how much better you made the show each day, but how much better you made me as a host. I'm going to miss you. But thanks for lending us your shine. Okay, enough soppy stuff. What Next is led by Alicia Montgomery, and I am Mary Harris. We're going to be back in this feed tomorrow. Catch you then. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.